Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to the SFIA Monthly Livestream Q&A. We'll get started in just a moment, but go ahead and start getting your questions in the chat window so our moderators can start relaying those to me as soon as we start. Please try to keep the questions concise and watch your spelling, and try to be polite to others in the chat. We usually go for about an hour so you probably want to grab a drink and a snack, though we'll take a break about halfway through too. With all that said, welcome and let's get started. Good afternoon everybody and welcome to our monthly livestream Q&A. We'll get started with your questions in just a moment in the chat window. Uh, as usual, we'll be taking questions from the audience as we go along. We have a couple to start off with from last month or that people got in early. And as usual, we'll be joined by my wife today asking questions, the Honorable Sarah Lane Fowler Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, so much fluff. <laughs> so... Um, this is a gorgeous spring day, at least here in Northeast Ohio. We had a chance to go bicycling yesterday. It's a good hobby. If you haven't gotten to enjoy the good weather, if you're in an area that's having good weather, then by all means do so after today's live stream, which will run for about an hour. So. Yeah, I'm jealous. It rained this morning, and now that we could actually go bicycling, we have a live stream and we're trapped indoors. <laughs> but it does raise an interesting question to start us off with, and that is, can we go bicycling on the moon? Can we go bicycling on the moon? Yeah. Oh. What would it be like to ride a bicycle um, on the moon? That's actually a good question. Um, the biggest problem people tend to have uh, with gravity is think, well, there's only like only about a third of the gravity you normally have on Earth, is it, or a seventh of the gravity you have on Earth on the moon. And um, you say it's a little bit like being in water in terms of how fast you sink, but it's also a little bit like you know like in water because it's hard to move as close to air. When you are on the moon, you're gravitational mass has dropped, but your inertial mass is the same as it's always been. Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, uh, you are still being slowed down by trying to move your arms around in a 100-pound spacesuit. So you could bicycle on the moon. You'd have very little air resistance. Trying to pedal in one of those spacesuits that we have these days would probably make you uh, really feel the workout. Uh, there's some great slopes on the moon. Everything's really sharp. Your wheels would pop almost instantly. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah. But, so, uh, so I need to work on some sort of new tires. Definitely, yeah. If you had some really good tires uh, and a spacesuit that didn't uh, feel like you were wearing a 100-pound sack, um, then the moon would be one of those places you could bike really, really well on. I don't so. think I want to carry a 100-pound sack with my 100-pound frame. <laughs> <laughs> so All right. bicycling on the moon, very different experience. <laughs> Sounds like it. Well, we had a question here from Adrian Burchell from the Moon to Mars. He says, if the Mars expedition discovers evidence of life in the past, such as a statute or building or obvious manufactured construction, would NASA tell us? Would NASA tell us that they discovered aliens or ancient aliens on Mars? Um, although, of course, we don't want to say, no, they might be aliens. It's a popular thing from science fiction, like uh, in some novels. It turns out not to be aliens. It's future humans or ancient humans. Future Space humans time travel. Tree. Yeah. But if we find ancient buildings on Mars or things along those lines, would NASA tell us? Yes. And, and the major reason I would say that is because while there would always be folks who say maybe we should investigate so we scale folks or get more determination on it, every single time NASA or one of the affiliated groups has come up with something that thought might have an outside chance of being aliens, they couldn't wait to tell us. It was like the first thing that bubbled out of their mouth. And they said, well, not saying it's aliens. Alien! Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, you know, the, the, the old joke is that the, the United States government leaks like a sieve and the scientists are even worse. Academia can't keep a secret to spare its life, so you have the beauty about it. <laughs> well, from the Mars, let's go to stars. We have a question from Chris Leach. Hey, Isaac, wondering which of the nearby stars you think would be the best candidates to colonize. I've noticed Tacenti and Epsilon Erdani come up a lot in sci-fi. Um, I think Tau Ceti, and don't quote me on this, Wikipedia is better for that, um, Tau Ceti is about 12 light years away, so it's one of the bigger star systems near us. There are like 50 stars about that same distance from us, most of them are red dwarfs. Um, 
and then Epsilon Eodonis with about 20 light years, and they're very popular in science fiction for that reason, because they're stars around which we would reasonably expect to find planets that are Earth-like as a possibility. We'd expect them to have solar systems, we'd expect them to have habitable zones and last a long time, and I can't remember, but one of those two is like 7 billion years old, or is that the estimate of it? Um, so they are good places to consider looking for it. I think we did one of those as the location or episode Dead Aliens, like four or five years ago, so... And uh, there was a puzzle at the end of that that I think we only had one person that actually successfully solved in that episode for Dead Aliens, so... <laughs> we have a question from Quack Quackston. What do you think about the future of virtual reality and the theory that it might be one of the great filters? Sorry, what was the name again? Quack Quackston. Quack Quackston. Everyone always has the most interesting names. <laughs> uh, what was the question in virtual reality? What do you think about the future of virtual reality and the theory that it may be one of the great filters? Um, I mean, we've talked about that before in episodes like Virtual Awards or um, Virtual Reality and the Fermi Paradox episodes. The big issue with Virtual Reality is, uh, one, it's slower to develop than I think anyone thought it was. You know, if you were in the 80s, that was, that was a lot of people were predicting it then. In the 90s, there were TV shows about it. And there really wasn't that big gap between uh, what we think of as really good Virtual Reality, like your holodeck from Star Trek, uh, and what we tend to have nowadays, which is... I think it's fairly awesome. I got an Oculus Rift sent to me by the developers, and um, I got nauseous using the thing in, in, in something called AirCall. Uh, plus, I have contact lenses, so I don't use my virtual reality makeup very often, but it's really good. Very, much better than the stuff in the 90s. So, it could be addictive, you know, if we get it even just a little bit better. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Pong. If you remember Pong from, like, 1980, that was addictive, you know? Of course, virtual reality can be addictive. Many things are, but uh, life is pretty addictive. Um... Would it be something that actually causes civilizations to collapse? Possibly. Um, it depends on how folks are using it. But here's the big thing to keep in mind. <clears throat> for a lot of folks, it would never be a good substitute for the real deal until it was so good that you carry on conversations with um, non-humans. That, that AI that will good enough to be able to sit down and chat with you or do other things with you. Um, and... Uh, if you can do that, then you can make a robot that's smart enough to go and mine an asteroid, and one that's smart enough to go to another solar system and mine an asteroid, and one that's smart enough to do that and build a copy of itself. So it's not a ban on, on going forward into space. Before you can have the technology make virtual reality good enough that people might decide they're going to live entirely in virtual reality, uh, even a large portion, let alone all of them, you already have the technology to colonize the galaxy with robots alone who can bring resources home to you to ever expand your gigantic virtual reality mainframes. Such being the case, it does not make for a very good Fermi paradox. Cletus223 says, Isaac, which technology do you think will be the first to get a large amount of people in space? First technology to get a lot of people into space. Rocketry. Okay. <laughs> which technology is going to be the thing that makes us go into space? Um... My two really big ones that I tend to think is the Kickstarters, the ones that cause us to go up there in big numbers. And keep in mind, I think we're going to get there regardless, just as, as costs get cheaper and technology gets better, as we're seeing with things like SpaceX and reusable rockets. Um, given enough time, we will get a presence up there that's just going to go on its own. But we can kickstart a big expansion quickly. And my two camps for that are um, asteroid mining, because it's nice to bring gold and platinum home to Earth and to have the metals right there in space to build with, uh, as well as moon mining operations. Uh, and then the other one is power satellites. It's a multi-trillion dollar industry, the energy industry. And that is going to be your best place to get energy. In truth, it's actually better than fusion if you're trying to avoid overheating a planet. So microwave transmission of power beams down to Earth from power satellites or mining asteroids for fun and profit are my two big ones that I think would get us into space sooner than later. Zachary Bush says, Hey Isaac, do you think humans would colonize the entire universe, and what ways do you think we can survive heat death? To colonize the entire universe would require fast and light travel, because um, there's bits of it that we can't even see right now, or at least we assume we can't see, because they're moving away from us too fast for the light from them to ever reach us. And most of the universe that we can see right now actually is moving away from us faster than the speed of light right now. So a joke is that nothing moves faster than the speed of light, except 99% of reality. <laughs> so um, we would need a faster than light means of travel. We're not going to get that, I don't think. But if we did, that would be how you'd have to do that in order to actually catch those places. Uh, or something equivalent, you know, your hyperspaces that let you move around space, you know, faster than light effectively. Um, 
And as to uh, how we'd avoid the heat death, we have a good episode on that, of postponing heat death, and then a whole Civilization at the End of Time series. And uh, those will give you a, a lot more details we can go into right now today. But the short form is you've got to decide, are you interested in preserving humans after that in a classic sense, or uh, is, is the mind what really matters? So. We have a question on technological singularity. It says, technological singularity with Anmal Gupta in what way can humans survive in a dark era when there are only particles? Hmm. Um, I think it might be a channel, actually, the technological quantum singularity with Anmal Gupta. But uh, question, how do we live in New York where there's only dark particles? You have to find some way to interact them. You have to be able to build out of them, or or you know gain power off them, uh, and that's pretty much what it comes down to. Either you have to be able to build out of them, or you have to be able to get energy out of them. If you can't do both of those, then you can't survive. Right? That doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be able to support organic life off them. Maybe everyone's on a computer, but that's the key thing. Whatever those particles are, in terms of the makeup, you have to be able to actually manipulate them, and you have to be able to get energy. World will bass one. Any ideas on how fusion could be implemented with RAM or scramjets? Um, hmm. It would be nice to be able to do fusion. You have very high-powered fusion to actually be able to run something like a RAM or scramjet. We had the one idea, um, you know, the scramjet. We looked at that in our, uh, was it, uh, beamed power spacecrafts episode as a way of doing uh, space planes. It was a follow-up to our space planes episode where we suggested that we could potentially use beam power to run a scramjet. They suck up energy incredibly. And we say, well, this is supposed to be a very sophisticated engine, the scramjet. And it's, no, it's a, it's big. We call it a stovepipe for a reason. It's really simple. All it does is let air on one side, superheat that air, and shoot out the back. So a microwave or could be made by basically just taking a material which uh, is absorbent to microwaves. You hit it with microwaves or beams, and it heats up the air as it goes through, and that's literally it. That is a scramjet. Um, the geometry matters, but it is a mechanically stupidly simple device, right? Uh, but it uses a lot of energy, and thus it would be very nice to have fusion to run that. But I, I think you'd need to have some kind of bizarre magnetic field that ran all your particles through there while it was super hot and moving things through. That doesn't really strike me as the most viable approach, but if you can get fusion walking and compact fusion walking, then there's probably no particular reason why you couldn't get one inside of an engine like that to heat it up. Um, and... Uh, you always prefer to actually have the power generation's heat doing the actual work of heating up air or rocket thrust in a case like that, because otherwise you're losing all that heat that's being produced by it to run through electricity to run a heater on the other end. It's, it's an extra step and loses power. All right, we have a question here from Juju Bear Memes. Do you think that a birch planet is possible? Uh, yes. I mean, that's for those who don't know, the birch planet is kind of your ultimate in Shell Wars. Paul Borch was one of our favorite futurists. He passed away. Um, <clears throat> and he came up with a lot of the fascinating ideas we look at for things like how to colonize Venus. And he suggested that you could build a gigantic shell hoard around uh, the black holes of the centers of galaxies. And we, we got around to discussing that for megaholes, and these would be things that had um, you know, surface areas a billion times what Earth has, because they you know, they're almost a million times more massive than our sun, in many cases, which itself would allow a shell hoard almost a million times more massive. And uh, we said, well, if that, that kind of mega planet, those are not just built around a normal black hole, but one of these mega black holes, how big could you make that go? So the smaller the Borch planet is what he originally suggested, and we say, how big could you go with that? And we worked it out to be something like, for an Earth mass, you could take it out to about, you know, I can't remember if it was two light years or 0.2 light years in radius. See our episode, uh, Mega Earths, for a discussion of what that actually is. Um, but that's about your max on that. Could you do it? Yeah, I mean, under known physics, you could. Would you ever do it? Uh, hard to say, but it's physically possible. It doesn't violate any known rules. This is a shell wall that would have a surface area, a quinti well, it is to a Dyson sphere what a Dyson sphere is to Earth. I think about a billion, billion, billion times the surface area of Earth. So that's a bullish plan. Question from Peter Thur Thurlow Will aircraft or other airborne units like the Perseverance drone have a place on other worlds? Um, probably. I mean, you need some air to run fixed wings or, uh, or helicopters, but uh, it's not necessarily about the density of the air that factors in these things, but you couldn't really run one of these things on the moon, for instance. Um, you have to go pretty fast in some cases, but you can actually have aerodynamics even in deep space. You know, If you're getting close enough to the speed of light, the neo-vacuum of interstellar space will start to act like 
uh, an atmosphere, or at least start to act like air. There's no gravity pointing a specific direction that's going to give you that lift up and down kind of thing. Um, but uh, you, you have aerodynamics in, in, in super relativistic, hyper relativistic vessels. Um, but uh, will we be using them on those smaller moons? Yeah. Uh, on the bigger moons? Yeah. Will we use them on Venus? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Will we use them on any of the gas giants? Yes. So we'll see lots of aircraft in, in our future. Yeah. B. Gurgley says, do you think the James Webb Space Telescope will be launched this year? I'd be happy if it was launched this century. Uh, I, you know, it's, there, there are two events that I do not ever waste time guessing dates for over their release. One is the James Webb Telescope, and the other is uh, George R. R. Martin's next book, uh, Winds of Winter. I expect it sometime 2050. So, no, I don't know. <laughs> A question from Innocuous Remark. After the other galaxies have receded from our supercluster and the CMB has stretched too far to measure, could the expanding nature of the universe be rediscovered? So, around 100 billion years from now, uh, according to current theory, the only, the only thing that would be left for us to see would be the vague, ghosty remnants of galaxies as radio telescope blobs. Uh, they'd be that redshifted and, and shifting ever more to the point that you probably not even be able to see them beneath the CMB levels. Um, they'd be very redshifted. Uh, long before that, in the next 3 to 20 billion years, all the galaxies in our local group that are still gravitationally bound to us, they're not expanding away, should have collapsed into one big mega galaxy with some satellite effects. Uh, and that, if you were to have life pop up inside one of those, inside all these little clusters where they're just that last gravitationally stuck together bit, and everything around them is this huge, massive, empty universe around them, far bigger than what we're in right now, where you just get some radio waves that are not even discernible at that point. Would you know about the expanding nature of the universe, or would you just know, here's my big clump? Um, and the answer is yes, it would not be as obvious. You probably wouldn't discover it for quite a while, um, especially given that your civilization didn't even pop up till the year 100 billion. You're probably not the fastest folks out there. Um, but they still have the occasional ejected star, or the occasional ejected cluster, or neutron star, or even black hole with lots of gas around it that would be falling outside that area where the dark energy was still able to push it far away. So you would see that expansion, and you should be able to figure out from that, and the remnant signals of redshifted things that, yes, the universe had been expanding. Question from Emilius Lante, and thank you for your donation, Emilius. Greetings, Isaac. What do you think about Eric Lentz and his non-negative warp drive? Um, hmm. I'm not as familiar with it as I should be to answer this question, so I'm going to limit response on this. Uh, I would say to folks what I usually say on this is, if you want to create a warp drive under the current theories, you need to have either negative matter or negative energy, which are arguably the same thing. Um, on paper, this then works. But uh, I think we actually just talked about this the other day. Uh, what is 2 minus negative 2? We say, well, okay, well, that's that's 4, right? It's 2 minus a negative number. That's that's 4. Say, like, good. That works on paper. I can put a cookie into a cookie jar and say that I've just stolen a negative cookie from that jar. Oh, so we're not talking negative numbers again, are we? We, we actually, yes. Oh, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, these work on paper. In, in practice, you're not going to get somebody convicted of having stolen a negative cookie from a cookie jar. You're not going to find a negative cup of coffee. It's an accounting math trick. Uh, so when we have various types of wormholes uh, being stabilized by negative matter, when we have various types of warp drives that rely on negative cups of coffee, negative cookies. Uh, How negative, about negative chocolate? Negative chocolate, too. But again... I, I'm all in favor of you giving me negative chocolate. You, you are? That'd be I was taking your chocolate away from you. No, you said it would mean that I put some in. No, no. If I if I gave you negative chocolate, that would mean I was stealing your chocolate. Oh no, you can't do that. Okay, all right. <laughs> so I can steal your negative chocolate. <laughs> Point being that this is is logically not not viable. You know, it, what works on math does not work in reality all the time. At least That's right. You steal sense. my chocolate, and I'm going to come get you. <laughs> and thus being the case, I don't tend to be a big fan of Star Wars. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Star Wars, yeah, that's ringtone. <laughs> um, I'm not a big fan of negative matter-based systems for any type of portion. Uh, if there is one, and I've heard folks talk about ways that might get around either using negative matter or negative energy, I'm not familiar enough to discuss what's with those, but I, generally, mathematically, you do have to have that negative in there to get around light speed, which is why some people say this probably ain't happening. 
So would this at all be related? We have a question from Cozy High. Also, thank you for their contribution. Why haven't we used sled launch assist to space? Hmm. Sounds like what your mom wants for her bicycle. (laughs) (laughs) Sled launch assist. Well, mass drivers in general, right? Um, We want to go land folks on the moon. A parallel to that is we want to go send somebody down to the South Pole uh, or plant a flag on the North Pole, Mount Everest. I don't want to move 100 people up there. I don't want to move 100 people there every day. I don't want to move megatons of cargo back and forth there. When we start talking about any of the things that involve the large infrastructural sleds, you know, your mass drive, or that tends to be where that comes in because humans can only handle so much acceleration, especially for more than a few seconds, right? We could probably push somebody up at 20 G for a minute without killing them, but that's getting iffy. To get something up to speeds that would get them into space, you know, we accelerate those rockets going to space at like four or five G for a minute to get them up to the right speed. That's rough on someone. And they also cover hundreds of kilometers to get to that speed. So when we start talking about these launch systems that require you to run down a rail, which I'm very fond of mass drivers as an example, you're looking at a lot of infrastructure. It's the equivalent of trying to say, I want to go explore Mount Everest, so I will build a railroad track up to the summit so I can go up there and see what's there. It's, it's a, something you do down the road. Okay. Zachary asks, what are your thoughts about the photos from the rover on Mars that show fossil-looking things and artificial-looking things on Mars? Um, you know, you'd have to probably narrow down which specific event you're referring to unless there's been a new one in the, in the well, if there's been one the last week, I haven't heard about it. I've we went biking instead. Good, yeah. It was really good weather. We went on vacation. <laughs> Um, but uh, there's always sightings of this or that on Mars in terms of what it is, and it is possible that some of these things are going to turn out to be fossils, but none of them really hit that line yet. Again, if we should always work on the assumption that if we think it's life, it probably isn't. My usual philosophy is that if something is life, or if something is a sign of intelligence especially, you're going to know. You're not going to be arguing about it. You know, if a flying saucer lands on the front lawn and green dudes get out from it and you track them coming down through the sky, no one's going to be sitting around going, well, they might be a hoax. Someone might raise that later on, but like, you know, maybe it was a hoax, but no. If a mothership 100 miles across lands in an upper atmosphere and is sitting there staring down at us, no one's going to be like, that might be a natural phenomenon. So I tend to take the viewpoint that with any of these phenomena, always investigate them more. Um, but, you know, especially if we think there's a sign of artificiality or life about them, but don't get your hopes up because odds are, if it was the real deal, you'd know. Thank you, The Last Roman, for your $10 donation. He says, hey, Arthur, your buddy Thomas here. Do you think the discovery of new extraterrestrial fern and fauna will alter our physiological way, physiology, the way that the Columbian Exchange did? I was aware we had discovered any extraterrestrial flora fauna. Sorry. Uh, well, do I think? Oh, do you think a discovery of it would? Okay. Um, no, not so much. I saw a poll like two decades ago that that asked people if they thought that there was alien life out there, and more than half of the respondents said yes. Right. Um, the real deal is obviously a lot more shocking than the the hypothesis of it, but. Um, you were talking about cultural effects really slamming people. Yes, that's going to be a real thing, but we get those all the time, you know. Uh, finding out that there was alien life on a nearby planet isn't going to shock us for the reading life elsewhere. It's going to shock us in how it's set up. It's going to be all the little things that come along with it, right? You're not really getting surprised as a civilization when you've been living on an island and somebody shows up from a foreign island and you suddenly like, wow, they showed up on metal ships. That's shocking. You're surprised by all the little things like microwave ovens or radios that you've never heard of before and how they, they change your life. So we have a Dobra Vede said, thank you for your uh, generous contribution. He says, I'm rewatching Expanse now. I don't consider it likely that there would be human miners. Thank you, finally. What do you think about it? I agree. Um, wouldn't robots be so advanced that you simply don't need any human manual workers? And I'm just going to add, the part where that guy's poor hand gets cut off and they redo it, why wouldn't they want to use a robot? A lot less risky. It, totally agree with the question. I, I don't I don't disagree. <laughs> Sarah is still new to science fiction and likes to talk to me in the shows and guess what's going on. Uh, we've been watching season two of Star Trek Next Generation the last couple of days, too. So, <laughs> Not one of the best seasons, sadly. Um, oh, my. Um, would you actually have human miners? Yes. And I'll say why you would have human miners. Do we have human farm wars? Yes. 
how many people are actually dragging a plow and a hoe through their lawn. Quite a lot of people, actually. I don't mean Thor Ward countries either. I have a hoe in the you know that's in the shed. We use that thing for the garden. And lots of people still garden with very simple and primitive tools. Lots of people might mine their own personal asteroid with simple tools too. For all I know, as a recreational hobby, it's good exercise. But more importantly, driving a tractor around instead of plowing with a horse or a hoe does not mean that you are not a farmer. For that same reason, running a whole horde of drone mining devices that you yourself have never even come within a, a hundred miles of the actual asteroid that's doing it does not mean that you are not a miner. It, that's how you make your money. What do you say to people at the point, I am a robot mining supervisor. No, you say, oh, I mine ore. So that, that will just change, like many things that will change. Will people actually be swinging around, um, you know, picks and axes on other planets? Probably not. Will they themselves be getting out of the ship in a spacesuit to tether something down? Occasionally, but probably in the sense of it's going to be faster and easier when we go out there and see what the what the hassle is and fix it with eyes on. But that just depends on how comfortable people get with like virtually controlled robots. I'd rather my eyes on be like the robot that Anakin makes that fixes his ship while it's flying. What? Though he didn't make C three PO. He he made uh, the. Uh, um, yes, the other person. But wait, oh my god, he, he didn't make R two D two. He made C three PO. R two D two is what he fixed the ship. That was. I, I, look, we're not going to get into the Star Wars prequel trilogy. Well, I like that kind of robot. any rate, <laughs> moving on, we have a question from Martin Stallard. And thank you also for your donation, Martin. Could a planet have an atmosphere with noble gases? Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, most of the planets in our solar system do have uh, atmospheres of noble gases. Your noble gases are helium, uh, the second most common gas in the universe. Then, like, what is that what is it? Fluorine or neon? One or two. I think it's neon. Uh, and then it goes to um, to argon. When there's argon on all planets, the third most common gas or second most common gas. There's a lot of those out there. So it's, it's one of the things you tend to find about a lot. We have a question from Sonobello. If we could make wormholes, could we also tweak space in order to make rooms that are bigger on the inside, like the inside of the TARDIS from Doctor Who? Mm-hmm. Uh, I never thought of it as big on the outside. I always thought it was a smaller smaller on the outside than bigger on the inside. Yeah, it so. said bigger on the inside. Yeah, it's smaller on the outside. So it is. <laughs> you've, seen the, you've seen Doctor Who. I uh, think that's, that's what the question says. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah sorry. It's, bigger it's a joke on the, the, the show. It's a joke the um, the I thought I misread The is it. always an example of this big box, and we also call this hammer space, uh, which is, for those who have seen the old Looney Tunes things where the, the coyote or whoever pulls a, a hammer out of nowhere to hit people with or an anvil out of nowhere... Hammer space being the idea of, of where they get that from, or a large pocket dimension. Your bag of hoarding, for those of you who are Dungeons & Dragons fans. Um, and um, if you can make a wormhole, you have the alternative to that, which is instead of having a bag that is bigger on the outside, you instead have a bag that's got a hole in it that reaches into a warehouse you've got somewhere else. And we did look at that more in our episode, Wormholes, back in about like 2016. It's been a lot. We should probably redo the Wormholes episode sometime. <laughs> got a question here from Henry Myers. Thank you also, Henry, for your donation. Isaac, what do you think about converting Jupiter Trojans into freight travel for asteroid mining? Hmm. Um, the Trojan asteroids, and I guess the Greek asteroids too are at it, um, because there's, there's technically two different belts, you know, we always refer to both as the Trojans. Um, <clears throat> they are potentially very handy for that, because you can very easily start putting them in some interesting orbits that might make them very good uh, interplanetary cyclos, but um, whenever you're trying to take a rock and turn it into a spacecraft, and this is a critical thing we talk about, like, let's carve out an asteroid and use it as a spaceship to another solar system. The hard part of spaceships is not coming up with all the metal to make them thick hold and shielded. The hard part is coming up with all the fuel to push them. So our spacecrafts are tiny, skinny, fragile things because fuel. Uh, using a gigantic asteroid doesn't really help with that situation as a result. Because like a couple of meters of random rock is really not as good as, say, 10 centimeters of depleted uranium steel armor. Just a couple more questions before the break. We have a question from James Sharp. Hi, great channel. What are your thoughts on colonizing the moon versus colonizing Mars? This one comes up a lot, and I I, I understand why people want to do Mars first. In many ways, it's a better colonization spot, but the moon is much more useful to us. Mars is, I should put this, Mars is a gigantic red rock that has a big gravity well and is a useless hunk of garbage. <laughs> uh, 
Well, that's putting it bluntly. <laughs> it is a place you could live, but so is Antarctica. Uh, I would, you would, you would be better off to colonize Antarctica than to colonize Mars. Do I think we should colonize Mars one day? Absolutely. We've done some episodes on it. Um, which one is our priority for actually getting up into space and, and, and getting stuff done in space and expanding humanity out into space? The moon. Why? The moon is nearby. It's kind of gravitationally on your way out of the Earth system. And uh, it's got a lot of stuff on it, but it doesn't have as much stuff as Mars, which is advantageous because gravity. Uh, the more stuff you got, the more gravity you got. And, and we want a lot of stuff, but we want to have to not drag it out of a gigantic gravity well. So the moon is really good for that. Last question before the break is from KD. Sir Isaac, do you have possible thoughts on the upcoming release of the Foundation series on Apple TV? You know, I uh, my biggest thought with the Foundation series coming up on Apple TV, uh, I love the trailer. Uh, visually, it was great. And then my second thought on that was, please don't screw it up. <laughs> uh, every time they get ready to take a classic science fiction or fantasy series and turn it into a TV show or movie, my first thought is, please don't screw it up. Uh, then my second thought is, let's have lowered expectations because you want to be able to enjoy a thing. Don't, don't put it up on too much of a pedestal. Uh, otherwise, you'll never be able to enjoy the show. And some shows have been quite good. Um, many of the episodes of Game of Thrones were very good compared to the, the, the book series. Many were not. Um, many of the books in that series aren't increasingly good either. Um, and, you know, the Foundation series, the trilogy is great. The, some of the sequels, as my vote later on, like Foundation's Edge and Foundation Earth, were really not that great either, though. So, um, But uh, they weren't bad either. They were worth reading. One of the greatest science fiction series, if not the greatest science fiction series in history. Uh, by my namesake and the grandmaster of science fiction, Isaac Asimov. Uh, there's, no one's going to match that TV show-wise to, to manage to pull that off, but they can probably do a pretty good job. And if they put the right effort into it, and if they try to do it right, like they did with The Expanse, a few others, then we might have a really good TV show. And that's what I'm hoping for. And I will go into it hoping that's what it is and, and not putting my expectations too high. So, all right, we're going to go ahead and go to break, and we'll see you in about four minutes. So we will be on break for a few minutes so we can all grab a drink and a snack, and you can get some more questions into the chat. While we're on break, I thought we'd spend a couple minutes talking about Roko's Basilisk a bit more, or rather its resemblance to Pasco's Wager and its variation Pasco's Basilisk, and how they fit with things like free will or asking if the universe is really a dream. We discussed Roko's Basilisk in passing in our episode on Resurrection a couple weeks back, and it's the notion that a machine intelligence of vast capability can hypothetically calculate the trajectories of particles in the present to extrapolate where they were in the past, or in short, to see where the various atoms composing your neurons were before you died, which can then reproduce or simulate to effectively resurrect someone. Now we principally raised Roko's Basilisk to point out how it was impossible, but Roko's Basilisk comes up as a type of malicious resurrection, essentially that you could resurrect someone to torture them, and that in this way a computer mind, which does not yet exist, can coerce people alive now to help it come into existence, by worrying that it will eventually come to exist no matter what we do, and that those who did not aid this will be resurrected and punished. The argument has a ton wrong with it, and often gets compared to famous mathematician Blaise Pascal's well-known wager, which is that since God either does or does not exist, and that people who follow his commands either go to heaven or are punished for disbelief, then you should always opt to believe in God since the downside of that is that if God doesn't exist, you are not getting the afterlife, good or ill, whereas the disbeliever has that as their best outcome, the other being eternal torment. A common objection to both Pascal's Wager and Roko's Basilisk is that it's treating these options as binary, that either an AI exists who will torture people retroactively for not working to bring it about, or does not exist, when there are a whole ton of other options. And same for Pascal's Wager, a common objection is mini-gods, which is to say your options are not binary and other possible deities with other rules might exist, following Thor or Zeus might get you in trouble if you die and it's Anubis who greets you. Now there's counter-arguments to both of those too, but we're not interested in those at the moment. Rather it's this 2 by 2 grid of X is either true or false, and you can't know which, and Y is something you get to choose. In this case you have no control over whether the AI or God exists, and are assumed to have no way to prove either case either way, but you do get to pick which option you choose to believe will occur or is true. And again both Pascal and Roko's options are pushed as binary, when they really probably should not be. We do have a fair few number of other problems that are more binary of this type though, or at least ones where I've not heard of a third option of consequence. For instance, we have dream or simulation questions. Stuff is either real or it is not. 
and to the best of my knowledge we have no way to determine that. Thus we would say there are four options. Things are either real or they are not, and I either act like they are real or I do not. And thus I choose to assume things are real, because if I assume they are, and they are not, then I'm out very little, whereas if I assume it's unreal and it is real, I'm potentially squandering my existence for no better return than constant existential crises. And the same applies to free will, we can't prove we have it or do not, but I can't think of a third option besides those two of significance, so I can only pick if I believe I have free will or not, and assuming I have free will when I do not seems a better option for being wrong than assuming I do not have free will if it turns out I do. And you can do the same for a lot of other things, but carefully. As an example you could do it for if life has a meaning or not, and if you believe it does, but hit the same issue with Roko's Basilisk or Pascal's Wager if you're altering that to a specific meaning of life and consequence of belief or disbelief. Or for that matter if you're dealing with the reality case and the condition for emerging from a fake reality to the real one is becoming aware it's a fake. And that's an essential concept as when dealing with the future or with philosophical problems, We often tend to get trapped into thinking we have a dichotomy with only two options, and sometimes that might be so, but at the same time we often get a bit stuck in what turns out to be a false dichotomy, and we encounter this a lot in the topics we look at on this show and it's a fairly common question. With all that said, let's get back to the show and more of your questions. And we're back. Well, we had an interesting question and I wanted to wait until after the break so that everyone could have the opportunity to hear your drink and a snack reference, and uh, this was from Coco Butt. Would you license drink and a snack as a restaurant chain, and would you let the Kardashev scale be used for the supersize menu? First, I think we were saying earlier about people with strange usernames. Sorry. <laughs> okay, that is a good one. The K2 fries. What kind of fries do you have? The K2. Although I guess that the K2 fries would be, what, a quadrillion french fries then? Um, I don't know, even by the consumptive standards of folks eating fast food and more of it than they should, the cottage show scale might be too big for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love that idea, the drink and a snack. <laughs> so yes, that's a good one. <laughs> we have a question from Ben Sai and Games. Do you think pocket dimensions could be an answer to the Fermi Paradox and that is where they could all be hiding. It's one of the better ones. Um, you know, we're looking at the Dyson Dilemma, which is kind of where we, we base almost everything off of for where we say the Fermi Paradox most likely resolves as them just being incredibly rare. One of the assumptions we have there is that you're, you're going to want to keep growing as a civilization, right? And not even necessarily as a cohesive civilization, just that you're not likely to ever be flatlining your civilization. You're probably always going to be growing while you can. Another is that you really don't have any better source of places to grow other than the universal manager, and that's critically the other big one. You need resource and energy to grow off of, and if the universe around you is the best place to get that, then you do, right? Well, it's very hard to get resources off of the moon, let alone you know Alpha Centauri. So if you've got a better source, uh, e.g. a wormhole that just goes to another planet that's very like Earth in a multiverse, or if you can open up pocket dimensions to your own personal little big bangs, then... Yes, that would be where you tend to grow. Now the caveat on that, as a Fermi Paradox solution, is that while you would presumably want to colonize you know, parallel realities where it's just a copy of Earth, or pocket dimensions in which you had virtually infinite resources at your fingertips, if you have those kind of resources, if you have that ease of access, then it's really easy for you to build gigantic spaceships, probes, telescopes, etc., uh, and decide, you know, let's go ahead and dump a few trillion terawatts of, of broadcasting power and see if there's anybody else in this galaxy, because to you it's nothing, right? It's it's like saying, I'm going to throw a piece of paper on the wind and see if anybody heals it. Um, it just costs nothing. So um, that is the big caveat on almost anything that lets you get on the resource restrictions of, of wanting to colonize the universe for resources. We have a question from Levi Hinkle, as well as a donation. Thank you, Levi. What complications do you see when humanity tries to learn its first alien language, even if it's if it's at even spoken and not like smell, touch, taste, or gestures? Um, I'm trying to remember if we actually released the... I know we did an alien languages episode recently. I just can't remember if it was one of the ones that just came out or if it's one that's coming out soon because I just wrote it. Uh, we have an alien languages episode that's either recently come out or is coming up soon. It's probably one of the ones playing up on the screen now that I think about it. Um, anyway, um, 
big thing with alien languages. There are realistically only three ways, four ways we get alien languages. One, we start hearing a signal from them uh, in their language. Two, we start hearing a signal from them in our language. Three, they land on Earth, or four, we land on their homeworld, right? Um, it really is no scenario for us just happening to bump into somebody who is, is around the same level as us, right? Uh, so we'll probably have plenty of time to look and, and analyze it. Or vice versa, they are going to have had plenty of time to look at and analyze ours. But any language that is not going to be of human origin is going to be mind-bogglingly hard to translate. Your chance of actually being able to speak it using your throat and voice is, is going to be very minimal. There's a Simpsons Halloween episode where they introduced Kodos and Kang for the first time, I think. Um, where they ask, uh, well, what's your name? He says, Kodos, or Kang. And it says, well, that's not my actual name, but if, if you were to try to pronounce my name, I'd have to uh, rip out your tongue so you could do it. <laughs> you know, That's probably optimistic about the kind of modification you need to speak any alien language. A question from Mark Zimmerman. What situations would human space marines be used in the event of an orbital conflict? Uh, there's the question of why would we be using human infantry or um, or humans in fighter jets, for instance, or for space fighters in the future. These are popular staples of science fiction because you want to be at the moment of tension of the action, and that means putting a human at, at the console or putting a human at the rifle. Uh, I would say, well, that's good for tension in science fiction, and so in science fiction you always see space marines, whether they are, they are superhuman or not, in the front of the conflict as opposed to some robot that is not even humanoid. Um, when would you ever actually have humans, though, in these conflicts? And this is the thing is, for a given value of human, whatever the sentient critters are, alien, human, transhuman, robot intelligences, that is the center of your civilization that actually runs things, that your military is there to protect, that is who the enemy wishes to attack to. The enemy does not want to blow up your drones, right? If they want to end a war with you or start a war with you or whatever it is, they're going after you, right? So that is the kind of situation where personal body armor or you know, things along those lines start making a difference. That is those conflict zones where people are at, that's where that's going to be happening at. But you do all your fighting where possible with you know, things which are not conforming to a human physiology. Arizian says, Hi Isaac, building an orbital ring for space travel right now is not economically viable, but would pushing to build one for the travel and green energy benefits be politically viable in the near future? Depends what you mean by near future. Um, we have to put, we have a lot of prototyping to do. In theory, you can put a wire that's no, no wider than the one running up my microphone right now um, to be an orbital ring around the planet. Uh, so it might cost you, you know, uh, a million dollars to manufacture that wire and uh, you know a hundred billion to jump up into space. Um, however, just having that wire up there doesn't really do you much good. The, the idea is to have one that's strong enough, tough enough that you can run a tether down to it or something like Xylon, uh, which makes for a very bridge and easier to make space elevator, or something big enough that you can claw your way up to the top of it or land on it with something like a, um, a hypersonic plane and uh, then have space infrastructure on top of it. That's what makes them very big and hard to do. Um, but uh, when is the willpower there for that? Not until you really, I mean, in my opinion, I would say if you're getting at least a couple hundred people coming to or leaving space every day on average, you're not to that zone yet. Right? That, that, that's when you start thinking about these big old launch systems that, that require you know, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of, of infrastructure just to get them running. So uh, we have a question from Acerba as well as a donation. Thank you, Acerba. How much of a strategic advantage would holding the moon provide, and would it be enough of an advantage to spur a country's rivals to view a lunar garrison as an existential threat? I think that in the modern context, um, having a lunar garrison that the opposition saw as military advantageous would be disadvantageous because you don't actually want other people to view you as a threat when they have a very easy way to strike back at you. E.g., we can have a nice big old moon base. We can have all the weapons in the world we want on that moon base. And you can put some awesome weapons on a moon base. Space is a great place to put weapons at. Um, the problem is that all of our citizens live here on Earth. So I've got an awesome moon base with infinite destructive power, but I also have all of my people down here on Earth, and they're so easy to shoot or blow up by other people living here on Earth. So 
you you probably are going to see people wanting to take advantage of the the strategic options there. You know, the mining potential, the space potential, the weapons potential. But I don't think you'd actually have people trying to go out of the way to have a military base on the moon in the near future. That is full of down the line because that's provocative and you don't mind provocative if it doesn't you know doesn't avail anybody but if provocative makes people point guns at you and you don't have any body armor not a good idea <laughs> so that's probably where that would stand merv johnson thank you for your ten dollar uh donation as well and merv wants to know if you could do an episode on faster than light and causality he says us on the subreddit struggle with this often when discussing any ftl topic we actually did do some FTL episodes way back in the day. It was an FTL series. And the problem is I almost never actually recommend them. I mean, that wormhole episode was the last one that I mentioned earlier um, because they are the first actual attempt at a series really on the show. Um, if you, for those of you who date back to like 2000, well, 15 and 16, uh, I was very fast in my coverage of those topics because I've been told if you try to do episodes that are more about 10 to 15 minutes long, you're never going to have a YouTube channel that succeeds. Uh, I eventually gave up on that, but at the time I was trying to compress more material by speeding up the the speed the script. So, <laughs> not <laughs> episodes I usually recommend. People can't understand them too well. But if you're used to my voice, try out the FTL series. I've been meaning to remake it for a while, but the problem is, you know, as you say with the future, people say, hey, are you ever worried about running out of topics? No, no. There's always so much more of the future to do. I don't really like to redo episodes we've already done too often unless it's really called for. And uh, I know I should redo the FTL series at some point, but there's so many other episodes I still want to do too. So we'll, we'll probably put that on there and discussing FTL and causality in that. But we did do a time travel episode um, early last year too, which I'd recommend too. Time travel, I think that was just the name of the episode from January of 2020. So try that one out and see if that helps. Okay, we have a question from Daniel Bont. Hello, Isaac. Would the air and water in an O'Neill cylinder lag a bit behind the solids? If they would, that might produce a breeze. And what are the possible landscaping choices that it would produce? You shouldn't, off the top of my head, you wouldn't. Um, but I might have to think on that a little bit because you could get some very minimal effects. Um, you do have weather inside one of those. And it's because the gravity is way different, the, the spin going on. I mean, what causes the weather on Earth? Spin. It's mostly spin, but there's also spin with the sun that's in one direction on it too. Uh, so it's not just because the planet's spinning, it's because the planet's spinning under a gigantic heater. Um, but uh, there really shouldn't be any lag that I can think of off the top of my head. You could have some kind of tidal effects I'm not thinking of, of just because there's slightly lower gravity on the you know higher levels, and that could cause something, but... Uh, I'd have to really think on that one. Though that that would be an example of, one of those things, though, that I wouldn't want to speak of conclusively until after we'd actually built a few of them and saw the real world effects. Because what's on paper and what actually happens when you do the you know dirty evil engineering and trans dirty, always always a little bit different. <laughs> well, we have a, a comment here from Michael Clack. He says, "Isaac, you and Sarah are awesome. My question is, if an AI wanted to kill all humans, how could it secure its power and processing ability?" Um, um, I think that's probably a chicken and egg situation there. If it wants to kill all the humans, it obviously first has to have those secured force, so it can't blow us up and then establish independence. Um, shooting the guy who feeds you as a war, um, not the best plan. So first, obviously, the AI needs to establish those, um, and that's going to depend so much on how it's doing it. If I were an evil AI, which contrary to internet rumor, I am not. Again, we do the live streams partially to remind people I am not a computer program. <laughs> um, and uh, if I were one, though, what I'd start off by doing is getting a little bit of control on the market. Get some funds through donations, you know, whatever it was. Hey, send me this, you know, send me money for X. I might provide them a product. There are always things that you know, people want in terms of data. Get those donations in Bitcoin or whatever it is and start buying real-world assets with them. And then just have those bits and pieces shipped by regular old companies to me. And from there, I'll start creating those self-replicating machines, robots, or automated factories and make money off of those. And that's where you get your start. You get that huge amount of um, you know, mercantile stockpile of funds, resources, and production. And then the robot might say to itself, you know, it's so much easier to work inside the system as is because I've had to develop all these psychology and marketing algorithms anyway to be most effective. Maybe I don't even need to kill the humans off at this point, you know. But if it was, that's still the route I go. Is is take advantage of the stuff that's already in place. 
So we have a question from Sci-Fi by Alan Crawley. Thank you also for your uh, generous donation. He says, I didn't see construction of communities, factories, or facilities at L5 in the NSS Space Roadmap. What infrastructure needs to be in place before humanity is in a position to construct things at L5 and L4? I guess the big thing is, well, we could build stuff there right now. We, we put stuff up there um, in terms of like small satellites. And I, I guess that would depend on whether you meant the lunar L5s or the Earth's actual L5s of the sun, uh, L4 and L5. Um, the Trojan points. Um, building up there infrastructure-wise is mostly about not just having the actual capacity to build up there as it is having something you need to build up there. And the thing to forget is that um, right now the main value of orbital space for us is that it, there's no gravity there. It's like when people say we need a routine section, a rotating section for gravity on the space station. I say, well, yes, it would help, but really what's nice about the space station is the one place we can actually experiment on that doesn't have gravity, so not really that much of us to put it there. Um, the L5 point, the L4 point, they're very valuable from a kind of launch and infrastructural standpoint. There'll be you know big hubs down the road and for space development, but they're not really all that advantageous themselves for the purpose of any sort of manufacturing. So they're mostly about having them as places we, we think about putting you know, on Neo but you don't need Neo Sonar until you have thousands of people living in space, and that's pretty much the key there. It's not that it's hard to build up there so much as it's hard to get the infrastructure up there and the resources and will you know the reason to do it. Eric Johansson, thank you for your donation. And Eric says, could we build a tether situated in LEO that, perhaps with solar power, could maintain its orbit by pushing off of the Earth's magnetic field? So I was, I, I've got the chat up on the side window for me, too, that I mostly don't notice, but I just caught that one from Morf Johnson. Is that Isaac says if he was an evil AI, he'd take donations on a live stream where we donate to him. So, yes, good point, Wolf. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing, and I was like, wow, what are you not telling me? <laughs> oh, I, I, Did you forget the current question? <laughs> <laughs> it was about electrodynamic tethering, was it? <laughs> What's the... um, oh, okay, Eric Johansson. Could we build a tether situated in Leo of a solar power that can maintain its orbit by pushing out the Earth's magnetic field? Yes, that is electrodynamic tethering. There is a company that's been looking at that. I haven't, I haven't heard of it in a while in terms of looking up on it. It was uh, called Tethos Unlimited. Um, and uh, we looked at that in the episode Skyhooks way, way back. Skyhooks episode two, which itself is also very old, um, where we explain what that is. But essentially, big magnetic field on the planet. Not really good for powering things, but it is very good for pushing on things if you have power. So what you build is a really long tether, like hundreds of kilometers long, and you run an electromagnetic field on that, and that lets you push off of the planet itself, or any other planet that has a big magnetic field, which fortunately is not all of them. Um, very handy if like Jupiter, for instance. Uh, and you just need a source of electricity at that point, and that is where you get the solar panels in there. Why this is handy for skyhooks is because skyhooks can very slowly regenerate their momentum. Um, but uh, doing that, this is not good as a proportion system by itself, but it's very good for slowly pushing large objects up. Um, and um, keep forgetting what the actual question was. I think that was the actual question. Yes. Yes, you can push off the Earth's magnetic field <laughs> to keep spacecraft in orbit or do station keeping. It must be getting close to the end. Uh, We've got time for a few more questions. Oh, yes, we have time for a few more. We have a question from Isaac Bordeaux. Do you think we will tap into the quantum fluctuations in the vacuum? <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm assuming that's the question is, can we do vacuum point energy? Oh, that wasn't the end of the question. I'm sorry. <laughs> the uh, pressure is changing. Isaac Bordeaux says, do you think we will tap into the quantum fluctuations in the vacuum of space as an energy source? Yeah, I just noticing the weather is actually changing outside with the pressure. I wasn't the, the, making the, it yeah, up. The sunny sky, the sunny, the it sunny day vanished. is gone. Yeah, it's vanished. And the pressure is really coming down on so can we do vacuum energy? Um, that would be awesome if we could, but the problem with vacuum energy is kind of like the baseline energy of the universe. Um, it is a lot of it, but trying to tap it's a, like trying to tap a lukewarm bathtub uh, for power. You you need so, you need you need some place that's down in order to get power as well. You know, quarter or lower or whatever it is. There's really no place beneath the vacuum, uh, and that's exactly what we start talking about. Well, how can we generate energy off that vacuum? Is can we go one level lower than that energy level? 
And when we start talking about that, we start saying, well, if we did that, will we accidentally puncture the universe and um, drain the whole thing out uh, metaphysically? And the answer to that is possibly. We don't know. That's out of all listed options for ways you might accidentally destroy the universe. But I tend to be of the opinion that you cannot tap vacuum energy usefully for energy, but I would love to be proven wrong, but only proven wrong in a non-destructive way that does not blow up the universe. Okay, well, here's, a, here's an interesting question from Super J. Kramer. Do you normally wear a suit in your own house? I don't wear one today. I guess I usually do wear one for live streams. Um, no, I don't normally wear a suit in my house. I usually sit at my desk here in uh, what t-shirt and, and sweatpants. It's like my work uniform. I, I my pajamas. I, I just walk around the house all day in my pajamas. So. Um, <laughs> as I used to recommend, I would before say the, though you wear a suit a lot more than most people I know for being around home. Yeah, no, I, I probably am one of the few people who actually wears a suit for walking inside the home and takes it off to go outside. Um, yeah. So. <laughs> um, we have a, another strange name here, Hand Sanitizer. And he says, Isaac, please do a talk on Clubhouse Man. I'll invite you if you aren't on it. Club, okay, Clubhouse is that app that, to the best of my knowledge, is only on iTunes, and I mostly hear about it as really awesome from some of our sister channels with Standard. Um, like Devin from Legal Eagle. Uh, if you've not seen Legal Eagle, go watch that. That's funny. Um, and Renee likes that too. But I, I don't, I'm, not an app, I'm not an Apple person. I have no Apple, no iPhone. You have an iPad, don't you? No. No? Okay. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not a big Apple person. And I think Clubhouse, last I checked, was still an Apple-only thing. Uh, so Discord is probably the closest thing I do to using that. Question from Jerry Torque. What happens when a neutron star finally loses its angular momentum and no longer has input in material? Does it decay somehow eventually? Uh, neutron stars slowly lose their energy from magnetic fields. You're pushing out that energy that's make them pulsating in the first place. But once they cool to a certain point, they're just going to start spinning around normally like any other object. Given time, every object that spins around will lose that to, well, quantum vacuum uh, fluctuations as virtual particles come out to slow and act them as a fiction, but that takes quintillions of years, so not really. I think I've got three questions left here at the moment that we can fit in. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one is from Isle Steinman. Mm -hmm. What would an eventual solution to the theory of everything bring to science and humanity? You know, I was actually just talking uh, to one of the folks, is it Brian Keating? I, I might be forgetting his name right now. Um, he did the, uh, oh my, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, the name of the book. He's one of the folks working on, on uh, Theory of Everything, though, and he did a book recently on that topic, uh, which I think is like our book of the month next month, actually. Um, I tend to be a bit iffy on theories of everything in general, because I tend to feel like it's it's trying to find an answer. It's taking an assumption that there is a unification, right? of these concepts, of these things, because we've had some other forces turn out to be unified, like electricity and magnetism, or the those with the weak nuclear force and strong nuclear force. I don't assume that gravity has to have the same unification somewhere along the line with electromagnetism. That would be awesome if it does, but I don't like to start with that as an assumption, that, that that answer is definitely true. And I think that one thing I tend to have a bit of a debate with folks on is that we often just work on the assumption that there is a unified theory of everything. I don't know that we should be just making the assumption, even I think it would be true. <laughs> Rational asks, a recent development of a mechanical artificial womb for mice is promising. How would having viable artificial wombs for humans affect humanity in the near and far future? Very awesomely. Um, First, it changes the state on when people can actually have children themselves, right? Uh, let's say you get to be 60 years old and you, you put your creel behind. You know, you, you focus on your creel to get uh, out there and, and get big with your creel and you didn't have a family, now you want a family and you're 60 years old. Um, that's exactly where something like a mechanic womb starts letting people do that. Um, or they still want to have more children, they have as big a family as they want. Um, other options is it allows us to potentially take a child who's maybe in a distressed pregnancy, you know, say a month or two in, we detect some issues with the child's pregnancy, and now we can go ahead and pull them out of the womb, keep them in a mechanical artificial womb at a hospital where they can be, you know, more directly tended to. Um, so it just gives us a lot more options for health intervention or, or fertility in general. Okay, last question of the day is going to Jackson Matterhorn. Hey Isaac, is your online content copyrighted? Can I use some of your ideas as inspiration for a short story? Thank yeah, it's you. all copyright. Yeah, no, all content is copyrighted. Um, 
but uh, can you use it in terms of the concepts or ideas? First, a lot of it's not mine in origin, right? Some of the concepts like Ligites or Bosch Planets, those, yes, those are right, but mostly it's other people's ideas that I've borrowed myself. Regardless of whether it's one of mine or not, though, yes, for the purpose of fiction, for the purpose of doing another episode on a rival channel, either, the concepts themselves go right ahead. And the names of them, those are free to use too. It avoids confusion down the road. Also, feel free to change the names of the concepts because I'm really bad at coining names too. So, But yes, you are welcome to use any of these ideas. The show originally started as, as advice for science fiction channels to some degree anyway. So you write a book or something like that and you think a bush plant's an awesome idea or a lagite's an awesome idea or you, you, know, you want to use all concepts from the Forming Paradox in the episodes, go ahead with my blessing. And uh, I would say for everybody else, if you are still able to enjoy any good weather and do not have a storm sweeping in, um, go out and enjoy that day with my blessing too. So we will see you on Thursday. Thank you for your time. So that will wrap us up for the day. I want to thank everyone for joining us and again if we didn't get to your question, feel free to post it as a comment below and I'll try to get to it this evening. Also, you can continue the conversation at any of the forums on Facebook, Reddit, Discord, or our website, IsaacArthur.net.